Calvary Chapel Mission Valley will begin their services at Riverside High School, their first Sunday services. They've been meeting on Thursday nights uh, and Bible study, and uh, we are going to pray this morning for Pastor Joe and his wife Emma and his daughter Melanie. Uh, they'll be um, leaving us, in essence, from, from here. I mean, they're, not, they're going too far, just the other side of the freeway. Uh, so we're, we're, we're blessed about that. But uh, at the same time, it has been a tremendous honor and a privilege to work with uh, Pastor Joe uh, for a number of years here at, uh, at Calvary Chapel El Paso and um, to see the work that God has done and also to see what the Lord has been doing in preparing him and giving him the vision for, for this, this new outreach in, uh, uh, in the Mission Valley or in the, in the Valley area. So uh, I want to ask uh, Joe and Emma and, and Melanie to come forward so we can pray for them. As, as they're coming up, I also want to mention that there will be uh, a number of people from our congregation who will be going to help with them and to serve with them over there to help establish the ministry itself. Um, so I, I just want to make sure that you all real, you realize we're still having services here next week. <laughs> okay, so you know, we're not all going to Riverside next week. Uh, but uh, what it does also remind us of is the, is the very fact that this ministry is actually growing because of that ministry. You know, God is growing us. We may be losing people around us, and, and of course that always happens, you know. But uh, in this case, it's a good thing because uh, those who are going uh, to Mission Valley will be serving uh, the Lord there. So we're, we're looking forward to seeing what God is going to do. Uh, at the same time, we're, you know, we're hurting because uh, Joe and Emma have been a part of our, our staff as, as well for a number of years. So um, there's times for readjustments. There's times for flexibility, and, and that's uh, something we're going to have to do. And... Uh, but we look forward to it because I know that there'll be some wonderful news uh, that will be arising uh, from from that work. As long as we continue to keep praying for them, and that's what we want to commit ourselves to doing today. So we let's let's lift them up in the Lord, if you will, with me. Joy it is, and Lord, also what a what a sad time it is for us to be praying and. Lifting up uh, Joe and Emma and Melanie to you as they prepare to begin the new, the new work at Calvary Chapel Mission Valley. We thank you so much, Lord God, for the number of years of service that they've given to you here. We thank you, Lord, for Joe's heart to, to really be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit, to do whatever is necessary, Lord God, to have your kingdom uh, progressed and <clears throat> so that it will continue, Lord, to prosper as you desire it to. We pray, Father, that you will bless this church. We pray that you will bless Joe in, its, in his preparations and, and in the, uh, the things that he has to do in, in reaching out to the community. How thankful we are that they've had a, a tremendous head start in that. And we pray, Father, that that would just continue. We ask, Lord, that uh, there will be many, many people that will, that will find you there, 
because he's going to focus his attention on teaching and preaching your word. We ask you to fill them with your Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you fill every one that will be with them, that will be serving alongside of them, that you'll provide for their every need, that you'll grant them, Lord God, every word that is to be said and everything that is to be done. We pray, Father, that you'll protect them from the wicked one, that you'll protect them, Lord God, from the enemy who seeks to, to slow things down. Lord, I know that they've already experienced some of that in, in, in the preparations at the school, but, but Lord, they're, they're not discouraged, and I'm thankful for that. And we're not, because we know, Lord God, that you've made the way already. So nothing's too hard for you. May you bless, Lord God, this, this church and this fellowship. May you bless them, Lord God, uh, overflowing. And may you grant them, Lord God, the peace of knowing that your presence will ever be with them, that it will be their strength, and the joy that you give them will be their strength and their song from this day forward until the day of Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Genesis chapter 16. Last week we began a study in this particular chapter dealing with a problem that arose in the household of Abraham and Sarah. Ten years they had been in the land. Ten years they had been expecting certain promises to be fulfilled by God. In ten years, they struggled with whether they would ever see them fulfilled. And so Sarah had this proposal. It was a problematic proposal. Let's help God out. God obviously needs our help in times like this because we haven't seen anything happen in ten years. Promises children? Don't have any children. So here's my handmaiden, Abraham. I'm giving her to you so that through her we'll have our children. They'll be ours. Sounds great, doesn't it? Abraham didn't complain. <laughs> but it became problematic, didn't it? It wasn't God's will. It wasn't God's time, in in essence. And it wasn't God's choice. And it wasn't a part of God's standard. So we pick up once again from that particular story so we can kind of go back and understand where we are and where we're going. We dealt with their impatience. Today we answer that impatience. That will be the bulk of our study today. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, <clears throat> Excuse me, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. 
And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. Sarah, in other words, blamed Abraham. I have given my maid into thy bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? In other words, where did you come from, and where are you going? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. An atheist was out fishing one day in Scotland, when all of a sudden a huge dragon-type amphibious beast began to emerge from the water. And with snarling teeth it slithered closer to the atheist, and in desperation he cried out, Oh dear God, please save me! And suddenly the heavens opened and a deep voice said, I thought you didn't believe in me. To that the atheist responded, Give me a break. Two minutes ago I didn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster either. (laughs) Now that may be how the main character in today's study felt. We're going to look at the woman named Hagar now. And And she may or may not have believed in God before he spoke to her. But she surely believed in him afterwards. You know, the book of Genesis tells about different people who heard directly from God. God spoke face to face with Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke to Noah, gave him instructions about building the ark. A couple of weeks ago, we studied about the conversation that God had with Abraham in making a covenant with him. This week, we're going to look at Hagar, a woman who never thought God would take notice of her. I sometimes think that many of us feel that way. That God never really has taken notice of us. Of any of us individually. We don't consider ourselves to be that important, so how could God even consider us? I'm here to tell you, God takes notice of you. Especially when you have that brokenness where you think nobody knows and nobody cares.
Hagar, as it goes, was not a person of importance. I mean, not like Abraham, not like Moses, not like David. She was not wealthy. She was not full of faith as far as we know. In fact, her only claim to fame was that she ended up in the middle of a big, ugly, complicated mess. Hagar's story is not a pretty one. But we can learn some lessons, and very important lessons, as it were, from, from her story here in Genesis 16. The first thing that we can learn is also the first thing that Hagar learned. And that is, quite simply, that life is a struggle. Would you agree? Life is a struggle. There have been some of us here that had to struggle for life even just to be born and to just stay alive. That may be some of our testimony today. There may be some of us who realize that life has always been hard. We never had anything at the beginning. We don't have too much now. (laughs) It's a struggle. We come to the realization that, uh, of course, none of us, not one of us, was born with a silver spoon in our mouths. Life is a struggle. If you've ever been given the privilege of, of, of watching a baby, get, uh, a baby be born, there's that sense that there's a struggle just for life to emerge from the womb of a mother. Life is a struggle. Last week, we we focused our attention on the proposal that Sarah made to Abraham to help God out in securing a child through her handmaid, Hagar. This was, of course, not only trying to help God out through fleshly means, it also showed a lack of trust in God in keeping his promise to Abraham. A lack of trust in Abraham. A lack of trust in Sarah. And even a lack of trust in Hagar. Because each and every one of them was impatient. Their impatience led to a series of painful words, uh, a series of painful actions and emotions that caused Hagar to flee Sarah's presence. Not to mention the disrespectful behavior that was shown amongst themselves, the mistreatment of people as Sarah mistreated Hagar. The devising of worldly plans and programs, trusting in the world, ignoring and running ahead of God. Not to to mention bitterness and selfishness, anger and pride. Do you know that when we are impatient people, there is an element of anger in our hearts? I mean, mean, let's let's look at at Sarah for just a moment. Look at Sarah. She devises this plan. She says... Oh, listen, Abraham, we we, we can do this. We can help God out. Things start happening. They follow through with her proposal. But what happens? Hagar has this this, uh, this spiteful look in her eyes towards Sarah now. And Sarah says, Abraham, it's your fault. And she becomes angry at Sarah, I mean, at, at Abraham, and, and, and also at Hagar. Bitterness builds up. 
And it all goes back to that root of pride. When we're impatient, we become angry. When we're impatient, we become bitter. When we're we're impatient, we blame other people. Proverbs 29, verses 22 and 23 tells us, An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. You know, there's a tremendous lesson for us to learn in that, in that when we are patient, we are only patient because we are humbled by God's presence. And when we have to wait, it humbles us. But that's better than being impatient and letting bitterness and letting pride and letting anger get in the way. How does the Lord begin to deal with the impatience of Sarah and Abraham? You'll find this interesting. But he begins to deal with the impatience of Sarah and Abraham by first dealing directly with Hagar. And he does, th- he does so through confrontation. He confronts Hagar. Now, a lot of times if we hear the word confrontation, we don't like the word confrontation. We don't like you know, confrontation at all. Because usually we, we attach some kind of a negative thing to it, you know. Or we attach some bad thing, you know, to confrontation. But, but let me just tell you all now that any time that God confronts us, it's always a good thing. It is always a good thing when God confronts us about our lives or about our sins or about our struggles or about our trials. It's always a good thing. Why? Because He makes us aware of where our hearts are at. So he he deals then directly with Hagar through this confrontation that we see in verses 7 through 9. It says, the angel of the Lord. And by the way, that little phrase, angel of the Lord, literally messenger of the Lord, is really a beautiful designation for the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. As we spoke of Melchizedek a few weeks ago. Melchizedek who had no beginning, had no end. And we considered that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate presence or appearance of, of Jesus Christ. So once again, we'll find that this angel of the Lord is more than an angel. It is God himself. And it says, And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way... To sure, the, designa- the, the, uh, the areas that are being given to us here, uh, uh, places, are to show us that Hagar was making her way back to Egypt. And, and, and he said, Hagar, the angel of the Lord calls her by name, knows her by name. And he says, Hagar, Sarai's maid, whence camest thou? And whither wilt thou go? Where did you come from? Where are you going? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. 
You know, when we act impatiently, we will oftentimes mistreat someone, perhaps several people. Sarai's and Abram's impatience had mistreated Hagar and hurt her deeply. So deeply that she fled from them and appears to have headed home to Egypt. But there was a danger in this. There was a danger in this to Hagar. Because Hagar was turning away from a household of believers and fleeing to a household of unbelievers. Consider that for just a moment. Here she is in a household where Abraham is the friend of God. He has spoken to God face to face. He has shared this testimony with his household and with his family. His family, of course, being Sarah. His extended family, of course, being all of his servants. And even those that came from Egypt. So they know that this is a house of faith. And they've seen how God has blessed them. But now because of this incident, because of this trial, because of this struggle between them, now she leaves and she flees. There's an impatience there. There was already a bitterness that had built up between her and, and her, and her, hand, and, and her uh, mistress, Sarah. But she's leaving a household of faith to go back to a household of unbelievers. And you know what? That applies to us today. Our household needs to be a household of faith and a household of testimony of Christ. And we don't want anybody to walk away from it, to go back into the world or to go back into, the, into a house of unbelievers. So our testimony needs to be sure, doesn't it? It needs to be right before God. A little problem there with Sarah and Abraham for a while, huh? All of a sudden they're devising their own plans. Where's God in all of it? No prayer involved. Secondly, Hagar was fleeing from the hope of a promised land back into the world. As long as she was in that household, she was going to be blessed with however God was blessing Abraham. She gives up that blessing when she walks away. Danger. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, Hagar. Don't go. Thirdly, Hagar was fleeing from God's will for her life and taking her life into her own hands. How many times do we think we're doing God's will and yet we know we're not when we walk away from a place that God has placed us in? Something to think about. Take note that God knew exactly where the mistreated Hagar was. He knew that she had been mistreated and had fled from Sarai. The Lord knew that she was hurting, that her heart was broken, and that she was full of pain. Why then would he, why, then would he ask Hagar where she had come from and where she was going? Why this conversation? Why there and why now? Very simply, and it's an important reason. God spoke to Hagar. To arouse conviction within her heart. God's confrontations are to arouse conviction in our hearts. Hagar needed to sense her own wrong in the whole affair before she would do God's will. And that was to return to Abraham and Sarai and to the household of faith. 
that's a tremendous purpose that we need to keep in mind. That when God confronts us, it's always always for good. But it begins with conviction. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. But He knows our hearts. This is why it's such a blessed thing to hear Psalm 34 verse 18, where it says, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. The Lord is near to them. He draws near to them who have a, who have a broken heart. But then it says, it's, and save it such as be of a contrite spirit. You know, this is, this is not all of what God does here. I mean, it's not all about God just drawing near. It's about us responding to Him drawing near to us. Because it says the Lord is nigh to them that are of a broken heart. Yes, He comes near when our hearts are broken. But what is our response to that? It says he saveth such as be of a contrite spirit, of a heart that says, Lord, I, I am truly sorry. A heartfelt contrition, a heartfelt sorrow for our sin. It's not like that kind of, 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 of sorrow, you know, that we have when, you know, when we're little kids and our moms tell us not to get into the cookie jar. So they put the cookie jar above two floors, you know, in the kitchen, you know, as far as they could. And yet, you know, we've become smart enough to build our own ladders. And then, you know, we put a chair with a box in and this and that. And then we finally work our way in and we finally got the lid off of the cookie jar and we got ready to put our hand into it. And mom walks in and, 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 and she sees us and we say, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know why we're sorry? We're only sorry because we're caught. No, it's a, do, a, a truly deep sorrow. He draws near and he saves such that have come to the realization that I've done something wrong in all of this and yet I can receive the blessing of salvation. Isn't that salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ? When we look at the cross and we look to see what he's done for us. And we respond, Lord, I'm a sinner. I realize now that I've sinned against you, a holy God. And I ask for your mercy. Save me, Lord. And he does. But there's something else to think about. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build unto me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things have my hand made, and all those things have, have been, saith the Lord. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is God doesn't need any of us. But notice this, he says, But to this man will I look, even to him that is, of, that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Now something else is added to this idea. God looks to us in our state of destitution. Because we have come to the realization that we are empty and without God in this world. And we need Him. And we're of a contrite spirit because we say, Lord, God, in some way I've offended you. And I confess that. But now it says, and trembles at my word. Which means I realize, Lord, that your word is true. And I am in your presence. 
If you go back a little bit in Isaiah, Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. He will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God responds to our response to him. And we need to check our hearts today as, as to whether we have responded fully to God. So it's certainly wise for us to search our own hearts to see what wrong we've done. Repent of that wrong and then get up and do exactly what the Lord says to do. And so the first clear answer then to impatience is that confrontation with God, which He will initiate. Even if we come to Him, He initiates the confrontation. And then the second clear answer is this. It is in receiving the promise of God because God will give us a promise when He confronts us. This is what He does with Hagar in verses 10 through 12. The angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly. Notice, the angel of the Lord has to be God. Why? Because He says, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly. This is God. That it shall not be numbered for multitude, which means that it will be so great that you won't be able to number your descendants. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, reminding us who it is and who the angel of the Lord is. And he says, Behold, thou art with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard thy affliction. First of all, he says, Behold, thou art with child. Now, please understand this. God is not telling her that because she doesn't know that she's with child. I'm sure she knows that she's with child. And then God is not telling her as if he didn't know before that she was with child. So God is telling Hagar, you're with child because I want you to know that I know that you know that I know that you're with child. I want to make that real clear. God is saying to her, I know that you're with child. And you shall bear a son. You will bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard thy affliction. Ishmael, God hears. But I don't want you to think that that name just means God hears. Because anytime God hears, he will also act. God hears and acts upon what he hears. We'll talk about more about that in a moment. Verse 12, and he will be a wild man. Now, <laughs> you know, she gets an assurance. Oh, praise the Lord. Now, let me tell you about your son. He's going to be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So, at the onset here, now the Lord is set out to comfort and assure Hagar by giving her several great promises. Primarily, she was to have a special heritage. Her descendants would be too numerous to count. But secondarily, Hagar was to be assured that God would always hear her and meet her need. She was then pregnant with a son, and she was to name him. Notice this. She was to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. By the way, take note that God himself named the child who was to be born to Hagar. God names the child. 
And God offers tremendous assurance to Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, along with her descendants, that he would always be available to hear their cry of distress and meet their need if they would only call upon him, the only true and living God. Now there are two phrases in our text of great interest. The first of all, uh, the first one is, of course, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly. And then the second would be the words of verse 12, which, again, he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now, the Lord would certainly have great plans for Ishmael. And we're going to talk about Ishmael later on, uh, actually in the next chapter as well. But he would in fact become a great nation as he would become the father of all the Arabic peoples. So it's important to understand that today's battle between Jew and Arab is nothing new. Both the Jews and the Arabs are descended from Abraham. By the two half-brothers, Ishmael, and the son to come later to Abraham and Sarah, who is Isaac. But what is significant for us is that the entire conflict can be traced back to Abraham and Sarah's decision to help God out in the flesh. Both when he had agreed to inseminate Hagar and when he went to Egypt To begin with. Because when he comes out of Egypt, you know, Pharaoh says, please leave. And here, take all this, take this stuff. And, and when he leaves, he leaves with people from Egypt as well. One of them being, of course, Hagar. So you trace it all the way back to that. And it's a le- there's a lesson here for us. And that is that the effects of sin may reach far beyond what we could ever imagine. The effects of sin may reach far beyond what we could ever imagine. Please don't ever think that your sin just affects you. Uh, you know, this, this, I, I got this sin, but it, it just affects me. It's not going to affect anybody else. Unfortunately, at that point in time, it's already affected you and God in your relationship. So that's one person. But it'll affect more than you think. So please understand that. And what of Ishmael's character? What about this character or nature that that is described by God himself? Hagar's child's life was not going to be an easy one. I mean, his nature is already depicted by the Lord as special. Well, Hagar, let me tell you, he's going to be a wild one. He'll be a wild man. Gee whiz, thanks. Didn't need to hear that. Couldn't you have let me discover that myself? It's very important that he tells her this. Because in prophesying Ishmael's nature, the Lord was in fact predicting the nature of his seed. The Arab people. I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm just telling you what's, what, what's happening here. The Arab nations of the world, as history has proven, bears his nature, the nature of Ishmael. Ishmael, in terms of his wildness, because the word that is used here for a wild man is, is, is applied oftentimes in Scripture to a wild donkey. In terms of his wildness, he would become independent or he would be independent. He would be determined. He would be stubborn. He would be dogged, unyielding, headstrong, and self-willed. One thing I want to add to that is a word that is used in the Scriptures. Stiff-necked. 
Stiff-necked is applied to those wild donkeys. You tie a donkey up in it with reins and, and you say, come on donkey, you know, and you try to pull him and he goes like this. And he stiffens up his neck and goes back. And then he goes like this. You know what that is? There's another word for it that we find in the scriptures. You know what it's called? Backsliding. We backslide. Stiff-necked. We're determined to have our way whether it goes against God's way or not. That was Ishmael. And that would be his people. Ishmael's hand was to be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. That is, he was to be violently aggressive, constantly at odds with other people and other nations. In addition, his descendants would even be in constant conflict with each other. I mean, that's going on today. Egyptians killing Egyptians, Arabs killing Arabs, Iraqis killing Iraqis, Afghanis killing Afghanis, Syrians killing Syrians. Not that they're all Arabs, by the way. There are, there are some distinctions, but in a general sense, you know, because of, of, because of Islam, there is that attitude being borne out. John Phillips, a Bible commentator of a number of years ago, wrote... Some insightful thoughts, and I want to share them with you. Uh, he writes, for, from Ishmael, and this was about 40 years ago, he writes, from Ishmael, the, the Arab tribes have sprung to fulfill the role of destiny upon the stage of time, so accurately predicted of them here. They remain in the background of the Bible, joining hands with Israel's foes. They, they found for themselves a prophet and hurled themselves like wild men against the ramparts of the world, building up a brilliant empire and spreading their creed with the sword. Christian explorers blazing gospel trails into Africa found that the sons of Ishmael had gone before and had set the continent ablaze in their savage hunt for slaves. Today they sit astride the oil reserves of the world and threaten uh, the peace of the world. Their rage against Israel keeps the world in turmoil, even on the brink of global war. It was all foreseen and wrapped up in that embryonic prophecy spoken to Hagar long ago. What a revelation of the greatness of God wrapped up in his sovereignty. I find that just a tremendous insight. What a revelation, he says, of the greatness of God wrapped up in his sovereignty. That he would say, you know, some 3,000 years ago, that this was going to be the character of a people. And so in review where there was a confrontation by God with Hagar. Out of that confrontation came a command. A command was given by God to Hagar. The command was, return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. But then came a comfort. A comfort is offered by God for Hagar and her son, verses 10 through 12. And he does this. He gives this comfort because God doesn't expect us to go it alone. God never expects us to go through our dark and deep and heavy trials alone. First and foremost, he says, I'll be with you. If we are his, he'll be with us. And whether anybody walks with us or stands with us or goes with us, God is with us. So he doesn't expect us to go it alone. He offers comfort. He says, I see and I'll respond. I hear and I respond. 
The Lord has heard her cries and his encouragement for her was given in the form of a promise and a prophecy. The promise was that she would be fruitful. The prophecy centering on her son Ishmael. And as we press on to her response, we see Hagar give evidence of conversion. First of all, by giving verbal expression to her faith in God, verses 13 and 14. But then also by giving vital expression of her faith in verse 15. By actually being obedient to God. Let's read those verses 13 through 16. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. Thou God seest me. That is telling us that she has just given a name to God. She has just given a name to God. El Roy. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Wherefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son. And Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. Obedience takes place in verse 15. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. There's a third clear answer for impatience. First of all, we are to be confronted by God. Secondly, we are to receive the promises that God gives us. And then thirdly, we are to worship and to praise God. If we're dealing with impatience in our lives, it's good to remember Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God, God says. Be still and know. Be still. And know that I am God. Worship the Lord. You can almost hear those words spoken to Hagar. Be still. Know that I am God. Hagar knew this was no mere angel who appeared to her. The angel of the Lord was also the God who sees. The same one watching over Hagar and Ishmael. How do we know that this was worship? Well, she called God El Roy. Not El Roy, like, you know, the Jetsons, kid, you know. <laughs> El Roy. The God who sees me. Because the Lord saw her in her distress and in her hour of need. He saw her broken heart and he saw her pain. And thus she worshipped him as El Roy, the God who had seen her and met her need. Because you see, when we consider that name, we have to consider that he not only saw her, but he acted on her behalf. This is how God works with us. You know, when, 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 you, um, when you call upon your kid sometimes, because also he hears, doesn't he? Just like the name of Ishmael. God hears and he acts. He sees and he acts. It's like, it's like when we're at home and, 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 and you call your kids, Hey, come down for dinner. What do they say? I hear you. 
but they don't come down. Or if your kids call you, you know, and you're busy in the, you know, in the garage or whatever, and they're, hey, Dad, can you come over here? Hey, Mom, can you do this or that? And they, you know, they say, I hear you. They don't come. And we do that sometimes, don't we? But when God is called upon, He hears and He acts. He sees and He acts. And that's what we need to understand about God in contrast to us. Sometimes we act, sometimes we don't. But God will act when we call upon Him, when we seek Him with all of our heart. And so it's more than just seeing us. He acts on behalf of the suffering. He acts on behalf of the destitute. And, and, and if, if anybody was suffering and destitute, it was Hagar. She was out in the wilderness by herself. She was on her way back to Egypt. And here she is alone. And God knows where she is. And He goes to her because He knows that she's destitute. And, and, and it brings to mind the fact, do you think that this is also us? Isn't that us? It brought to mind this thought of the, of the very words of Jesus when He began that wonderful and beautiful Sermon on the Mount. When there at the Mount of Beatitudes, uh, a multitude sitting on a hillside listening to Jesus. You could hear a pin drop as it were. And, and, and He began to speak. And what did He say? He, he began by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, and they shall be filled. But that first thought, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How can it be there is the kingdom of heaven, but in the fact that they have come to realize and acknowledge that they are without God, indeed poor and destitute. All of us are poor and destitute if we are without God. And if we are without God in this world. We have to come to that acknowledgement. That is, what, that, that is part of what saves us in the sense that we acknowledge that we're sinners and that we're lost and that we need a Savior. But it begins with that poorness of spirit, that destitute heart of, of being empty because God is not there. And so God speaks to this destitute woman. And she is near this well. And she calls the well. Be'er lahai aroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered, but it is the place where I meet the God who sees me. Because the name for the well literally means the well of him that liveth and that seeth me. One translator renders it the well of the vision of life. In that sense, it was the place where Hagar passed from death into life. From that point on, the true and living God would no longer be one about whom Abraham and Sarah spoke. He would be her God too. 
Abraham and Sarah, he's not just your God, he's my God too. And she confesses that, doesn't she? She confesses it with her mouth. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. My question to you today is, have you passed from death into life? I hope you have. I hope you're not sitting here still. In the death of your sins. I hope you're here now living in the life that is in Christ. You know, we not only pass from death into life. Paul tells us we pass from darkness into light. He says in Colossians 1 verses 12 through 14, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Have you passed from darkness into light? And have you passed from death into life? And you know, there is, there is an evidence for that. John tells us in 1 John 3, 4, 14, I should say, we know that we have passed from death into life. We know that we have passed into, from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. How clear, how simple it tells us we need to love one another. That's our evidence of having passed from death into life. We need to be careful, you know, when, we, when we're, we're told, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I love him, but I don't like him very much. You ever said that about anybody? Yeah, I, I have to love him because God told me I had to love him, but I don't really, you know. Well, that's not a good attitude, is it? No, we have to love him. I mean, we, 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 we need to deal with things, but we need to do it out of love. Jesus taught us that. Don't have time to finish on, on, on that thought. But there's a fourth clear evidence to impatience. And the fourth clear evidence is obeying God. We're going to close here with this thought. It says, Hagar bare Abraham a son. So notice, Abraham called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. That verse alone tells us that obedience has taken place. God had to find Hagar and deal with her and her life to bring her to him. But all the while, God was dealing with Abraham and Sarah as well. Now Hagar has gone back. She gives birth in the presence of Abraham to Ishmael and, and Abraham because I'm sure that Hagar says to Abraham, now listen, out there God says his name's to be Ishmael. And what does Abraham do? He calls his son's name Ishmael in obedience to God. And Abraham was fourscore and six years old. I just want you to know that this is Abraham a friend of God in the Bible, not Abraham Lincoln, who said fourscore and twenty years ago, the Gettysburg Address. Okay, I just want you know, I want to make sure you're still awake and with me. All right, Abraham was fourscore and six years old, which means he was eighty-six years old. That's right. Remember, it was eighty-five, uh, ten years as he started his journey. Seventy-five, eighty-five now. And then, of course, you have to count to nine months that uh, Hagar has been pregnant. And within that time, Abraham had a birthday. So, 86. It can be noted that all three, Sarah, Abraham, and Hagar, all three guilty parties now repented of their impatience and obeyed the Lord, at least up to this point. Now, Hagar returned to the household of faith, to the home of Abraham and Sarah. She would fulfill her purpose to live as a believer in the household of faith, to live in the hope of the promised land while living within the world, and to bear the child Ishmael, which God had promised. And then Abraham and Sarah both obeyed God. 
uh, they received Hagar back when she returned, just as God had instructed. And they agreed to name the child Ishmael just as the Lord instructed. So the lesson for us is this. If we've been impatient and run ahead of God, if we've devised human plans and substituted worldly methods for God's will, acting, reacting, mistreating and hurting others, we need to go before God to be confronted by Him for what we've done, and we must obey God by no longer being impatient, but by now being patient. And the lesson was clear for Sarah and Abraham and Hagar and Israel and and for Christians. God's servants are to trust his word and to wait for its fulfillment, enduring patiently till the end. It becomes increasingly clear in Genesis that any person or any nation that owes its existence to divine election should live by faith. Human effort will not help. But the good news for God's people is that the living God sees and acts. The living God hears and he acts on behalf of his people. I leave you with two scriptures, one from Isaiah 25, verse 9. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. I I love that statement. Hey, hey, hey everybody, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We trust. We haven't seen the whole picture, have we? But we trust that it will come to pass, because this is our God. And lastly, Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, we began our service reading this. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. I love what David says here because he says, he inclined unto me, and he heard my cry. You see, he didn't just incline, he heard. But then he didn't just hear. It says he brought me up also out of a horrible pit. Anybody been there? Oh, my goodness, I have to raise both hands. Just me and... uh, That's it? Anybody else out of a horrible pit? Out of the miry clay? Set my feet upon a rock and establish my goings. He said, you go this way now with me. And he has put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. Your life in being obedient to God will be a testimony to those who need Jesus. Let's pray.